Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding. See you next to Cashag G-E-O-F-F, Jeff Gannon. If you want to see what I say about him on Twitter from now on, type it in. Cashtag G-E-O-F-F, the number one value investing podcast in the world. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, it was going well. How's it going with you? Why is it not going well anymore? <laughs> you don't like that, that intro? intro? Yeah, we can stick with that intro. No, That's that intro is great. You know what somebody <laughs> said? They're like, you should uh, trademark it if you guys ever want to start a mutual fund or something like that. I'm like, yeah, that sounds like a... Uh, okay. I'm not, I'm not uh, <laughs> you know, I'm not like, um, what do they call that? Um, superstitious. Superstitious. But okay. that just does not sound like a good way okay. to start. But anyways, hope everyone is having a great day. If you're watching on YouTube, hit that subscribe <laughs> button. Thumb this video up, bring you a ton of content, having a lot of fun doing it. And of course, if you're listening on the podcast side of things, uh, rating review goes a very long way. If you want to sign up for quickfs.net, which is the website that Jeff and I use every single day to pull financials. Um, it's 35 bucks a month. Make sure you tell them that you heard of them from Focus Compounding and that will give us a piece of that monthly subscription price. So in today's podcast, we're going to be talking about investing during high inflation. And um, we sent out a poll, like uh, what we talked about in the last podcast. And the question is, which stocks work best and which stocks work worst? And this is actually the topic that got the most engagement, I think. People were really interested in it. And I wonder if that's almost like a good sentiment check of everything that's going on right now in the, you know, in the market mm -hmm. with the Fed printing and, you know, worries of inflation. And somebody actually said, what about deflation? Right. So I figured why not, you know, just go all over it. But I guess before we do that, and remember, we have a lot of new listeners, like okay. on the YouTube side of things and stuff. What is inflation? Oh, well, that's a harder answer. That's a harder question to answer than it sounds like. Uh, inflation, I guess the best way to describe it would just be um, the generally accepted way of describing it is it's a rise in the general level of prices. Okay. Um, the usual definition that's used in modern times is a rise in the general level of consumer prices, although they do measure other things like asset prices and wholesale prices, but those are not usually what people use now. Okay. Um, so then what is and, and general level, meaning like, uh, they use baskets and things like that, but medians and means and things okay. like that. And then how does that, I guess, tie into the investing process or when you think about valuation, because a lot of times you'll mm -hmm. say, and maybe if you get one to 2%, uh, inflation, right. you could tack that onto your IRR. So how do you think okay. about it when it comes to that? Right. And that's uh, wrong for the most part from what evidence we have. Uh, there's very little evidence at all that uh, actual returns on equity of the average company has anything to do with inflation. So from what we've seen, we had deflation in the 30s, we had inflation in the 70s, stuff like that. There's extremely little evidence that uh, those things that economists and investors believe is true. Um, yeah, some companies can do it, but most can't. So you had some of the lowest returns on equity in the U.S. Um, in nominal terms. At the same time, you had some of the very highest uh, rates of inflation. Mm -hmm. So, uh, But it is very important for some companies because they can pass it on completely. And I think it's easy for people to overlook that like Seize Candies, for instance, uh, at Berkshire, was so successful because it was a period of high inflation. It would have been a successful investment anyway, but why it blows away all sorts of other investments is because of inflation during that time. Um, yeah. Which stocks do you think, um, you know, typically perform well then in inflationary times? There's a lot of people that are worried about inflation right now. I'm mm -hmm. seeing a lot of tweets about gold. I'm right. seeing a lot of tweets about cryptocurrency. Every time the Fed talks, I mean, uh, the chairman came out, we're recording this on Monday. He had a 60 minutes interview mm -hmm. on Sunday and they were pretty much saying we flooded the system with money and we will continue to, we're not out of bullets, negative interest rates, even though they don't think they need to do it. That's not off the table. They have tons of ammunition left. And then I, I'll see a bunch of tweets by people saying, 
buy gold, buy gold, mm. buy gold, buy silver. Um, so other than that, but let's talk about like from a business perspective, right. you know, what type of stocks, what type of companies are ones to, I guess, search for and keep in mind that are going to benefit from inflation? Sure. So um, unfortunately, from a real return perspective, it doesn't really get better. So the companies that necessarily do really well in inflation don't actually, they will perform much better than other companies on a relative basis, but it doesn't mean that their actual real returns will usually be that much better. So even if you take something like C's candies or something for a large part of its performance, I'm not sure it actually outperformed oil or gold. Um, now eventually it did, but that's a good indicator for you of just how hard it is, um, to get a better real performance from it. But what they will do is better against other stocks. So inflation generally is very bad for many businesses, so it won't be as bad for these businesses that do well. So the simple thing is it's not really based on what um, industry they're in or something like that. It's a timing thing. So if they have a valuable asset that could be tangible or intangible, that's funded in the past in old dollars, and they can charge for it in the future in new dollars, then that's very uh, attractive. And they'll return really high rates versus in inflation. So like, for instance, we have an investment we never talk about. That's a large investment of ours. Um, that investment, uh, how it will do relative to other investments depends in large part on inflation. Because all of its assets have been bought in the past, land and animals, and require no, and require no reinvestment in the future. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, any price increases and stuff don't require you to actually buy more animals they breed on their own or land you already own the land. So it could be, it obviously could be fine as an investment without inflation. But what would happen is that versus other kinds of investments that we also own, it would do much better in inflation than those things would. Because basically you're not putting meaningful CapEx back into it. Um, and yet you are raising prices. But that also works for intangible things too. Mm-hmm. So like Seas Candy already had the brand name and stuff like that. If you're trying to build a brand name now, it doesn't really work because obviously ad prices and things 10 years from now, if you have a lot of inflation, will be a lot higher. So just not having a lot of assets doesn't really fix the problem. The So like... Um, say gold or something, right? So gold as a commodity, you can easily analyze how it would do in inflation, right? Although it's hard to analyze what the price is really compared to other things. But a gold miner, it's kind of hard because is the gold miner going to try to explore for more mines? Are they going to acquire other things? What are they going to do? Mm -hmm. Now, if you take a trust, like a royalty trust or something, as opposed to a actual oil company or a timber trust instead of a a company that might actually acquire more timberland, then you have a much easier way to figure out if inflation will benefit you. So that's a big part of it with like Berkshire. C's didn't then go out and try to buy Russell Stover because see, that doesn't work because if you try to buy Russell Stover, then you have to pay a really high price for it. If you try to expand with new stores and things, then you have to pay really high prices for that. So actually things like royalties and trusts work differently. So like ExxonMobil might do fine in inflation, but actually a trust that just holds royalty interest could do even better mm-hmm. because you're guaranteed that they won't try to buy more oil. You'll just get an increase in the price of oil over time. Mm-hmm. You know? So I guess this really brings into the topic then of price increases. Buffett right. always talks about you know, a business that is so wonderful that you could raise the price of whatever it is and customers keep coming on back. Mm-hmm. And you just sort of talked about that. So how does price increases then factor into like inflation? Is it really just being able to raise at the rate of inflation, being able to raise more than inflation? So the big thing is whether increases in your price have any effect on the physical amount of volume that you do. 
And the easiest way to do that is in cases in which the company has like almost no physical assets. Um, uh, the thing that like Buffett really, I think, invested in and found a lot of success with in high inflation times was um, ad, uh, companies that benefit from advertising. So ad agencies and also ad supported companies. So things like Facebook and Google, which get ad revenue, uh, are basically able to get the same amount of GDP, nominal GDP, regardless. So let's say advertising is 2% of GDP or something. And let's say Facebook and Google end up being half of that or whatever. Then they basically have a um, royalty stream that they can take, which is 1% of uh, nominal GDP. And that'll be true whether nominal GDP is 10 times larger or not. It has nothing to do with, there's not any real physical like volume to advertising. It's intangible, like a yeah. service. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Intellectual property. Yeah, then that's why he talks about that is like toll bridges that way. And newspapers work the same way. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious. So to my surprise, mm-hmm. a very popular podcast recently, and to my su- surprise, maybe because I just, we don't ever really talk about anything like financial planning or okay. anything like that. You were talking about, um, you know, pulling income from your portfolio and yeah. how you think it's going to be challenging going forward. Mm-hmm. So what does the investor do who maybe, for example, inflation is going to be high, market returns, theoretically, a lot of people aren't projecting to be high. Mm-hmm. What do they, you know, do? How does that tie into this like financial planning process? Yeah, of living on your income or living on your assets, you know, your portfolio. Yeah, it's hard, and it's like, not, what do they do? <laughs> you do, you don't want that to happen. If that that happened in the seventies, so if that were to happen, that'd be devastating because the actual. So, like, if you look at someone's portfolio in the thirties versus the seventies, while people think that stocks in the seventies did much better than the thirties. If you tried to retire in the early 70s versus trying to retire in the early 30s, it could be much worse in the early 70s, depending on if you had other things, government assistance, which you would have had in the 70s and not in the 30s, and pension things and stuff would have made it different. But put that aside, if you were trying to do it completely on stocks and bonds, you would have been in a much, uh, you would have been in a worse place actually in the 70s going through for the next 15 years or so because the inflation was high at the same time that stock prices were declining. So actually you had real declines that were steeper in terms of how much of your uh, savings you were eating through by selling, mm-hmm. if you were doing that. Um, so it is a very big problem and it's hard to avoid. Uh, the biggest risk in is that, and actually the book, uh, 100 to 1 in the Stock Market, which was written in the early 70s, and the last edition of The Intelligent Investor that Ben Graham wrote shortly before he died, also written in the early 70s, both underestimated the possibility that inflation would accelerate further. They thought, and they both thought that if you had depression-like conditions or bad economic conditions, they could only happen when you had like deflation because they remember the 30s. So they both kind of... I don't want to say Ben Graham literally advocated too much holding bonds at that time. The bond yields looked attractive. Mm -hmm. Uh, You could get things that looked very attractive at six and a half and seven and a half percent interest rates. But within not that many years, um, short term rates were at like 16 percent. So they went a little bit higher than that eventually. Um, So those didn't work out that well, Mm. uh, those bonds. And unfortunately, worse than that, those were some longer term bonds hmm. often right so they're not a short term of some things we talk about today so he but he, one thing he did smart is that he said even though i think bonds are a lot more attractive than stocks and by the way within a year or so of when he wrote the book that would have been true stocks did terribly for the next two years or so so he was absolutely right that stocks were expensive but he said because of risks of inflation and stuff i still am advocating a 50 50 bond and stock portfolio even though literally i think that you if you were market timing or whatever 100 percent bonds seems more 
the appropriate thing to do now. You can't do that because what if inflation accelerates? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because a lot of people do the whole 60-40 right, allocation right. or you know that. So I was just kind of curious about like when it comes to like the purchasing power, you know, and how that ties in with inflation, you know, for people's for you know people's financial needs. Yeah, we we I think I give people the sense that like I don't like gold or something like that, mm-hmm. and I don't have an opposition to gold as a small part of your portfolio that is something that you have mixed in with other stuff where you're worried about inflation Mm -hmm. and especially if you rebalance it so if gold is like 20 percent of your portfolio on one side and on the other side you have things that would um like long-term bonds and 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 that aren't inflation protected or something is the other 20 percent on the other side and 60 percent in the middle is stocks or something Mm -hmm. that you over time adjust those things so if gold doubles then you cut it down a lot if it halves then you increase it you know versus the other things Mm -hmm. uh i just think that it can work as a diversifier and same things when we talk about bonds and things, but you have to understand that in general, these things have lower returns than stocks over the very long term. And so even now I would be cautious. I mean, they're not very attractive returns that you can have in stocks. Uh, I mean, in bonds relative to stocks. So you're still taking a risk if you have like overweight those things. So if I sound not optimistic about stocks, I never want people to think that means you should be putting more into bonds. Uh-huh. You know, you always want to buy the, the, asset that has the best returns over the long term when it's not clearly overpriced you know so my problem with gold is how do i know it's not clearly overpriced Mm -hmm. and there are ways to try to figure that out but i would be cautious of anything that's clearly seems clearly overpriced you know um which stocks then work best so we talked about like advertising advertising companies Mm -hmm. um businesses that may have more intangibles right um what else comes to mind um so almost all of the very big tech companies mm-hmm. would do very well. Um, mostly they've already gotten to the size they are because they have these amazing assets that they developed and they don't have to do anything to redo those things. Um, there are other things uh, that are capital intensive that are fine. They actually could be pretty good, but it really depends on how much they reinvest in stuff. And so you'd have to have an idea for what management's plans are. Even things like um, a lime quarry, even things as as a capital intensive and not an, so much of a natural resource as a cement plant. If you knew that they were going to not reinvest a lot into that plant necessarily, if they had a lot of years left in terms of their um, uh, access to resources and things like that. And if uh, they weren't going to go and buy something, the big problem, a lot of it is the capital allocation thing, which is um, for investors in public markets, more of a problem. You're not controlling the capital allocation. So you want to be very careful about companies that are going to actually buy more things in the future and to even issue to use your shares to acquire other things, Mm -hmm. you know, like that. So stuff that basically you have a royalty stream of some kind and literally sometimes royalty stream things. I think you've talked. uh, I think you did an interview where you talked to someone about a cemetery company. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, and also I don't know if I've ever mentioned it, but I did write up Mills Music Trust and there are other things like that, which is just a set of copyrights. Um, things like that. And actually lots of trust can't really buy other things and stuff there. Any of those sorts of things, it could be intangibles like that, or it could be actual land and stuff like a cemetery. Mm-hmm. Um, but that wouldn't work if you, that cemetery was intent on like going, uh, national and buying up all sorts of other ones you know like a chain of funeral homes buying each other up is not the same thing as as one cemetery that you know won't do that so something where the asset they're not going to reinvest in future dollars what do you think how do you think berkshire will perform in a high inflationary environment much better and is that because of seas or utilities and railroad 
and and insurance actually insurance is not that bad in in um inflation so yeah i think all three of those would those are the three biggest businesses and i think they do really well and then what about i think grocery has been badly held back in the last 20 years or so because inflation hasn't been as bad as buffett's really? kind of prepared for wow. he's always very inflation concerned maybe sometimes too inflation concerned some of his decisions many years ago about some commodity stocks he bought and stuff i think were purely for inflation concerns so like what uh, he actually bought some things associated with aluminum, oil. He had a pretty big position at one time, I think, in ExxonMobil, going back 40, no more than that, years. Hmm. So um, I feel that a few of those were – there's actually a couple other ones. They're much less well-known companies. But, yeah, so he did a few that I feel were really associated with inflation concerns. Yeah. What about PetroChina? Do you think that was – No. No. I think that was just a very just cheap company. Thing. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. So what about banks? Banks and insurers are interesting. Um, they can do okay. Banks and insurers, if well run, don't do that badly in inflation or deflation. Um, there, there can be some issues. It, very fast inflation did cause problems for insurers. Um, Buffett wrote about it in, I think, letters in the 70s where he kind of was making fun of them because insurers had decided. So insurance policies like auto insurance and stuff used to be uh, annual. You'd renew annually. And now people may notice that you renew every six months. And there's not a good reason for that today. There's not much inflation and stuff. But uh -huh. in the 70s, there was a very good reason for it, mm. which is that prices at sometimes for um, fixing the car, but especially for jury awards and things like that, were increasing 10% in half a year. So you didn't want to wait till they increased like 20% in a full year. And so um, the, the, they d insisted on switching to a six-month policy renewals instead of one year. But at the same time they did that, they went and bought long-term bonds. And so he was kind of making fun of them because at the same time that they're saying we can't accept fixed prices for a year, they would then turn around and f have fixed prices for 20 years mm -hmm. in their bond portfolio. So it depends on the portfolio of the insurer. And we've talked about that before. Mm -hmm. There are some insurers that go very far out and stuff, and that would be a concern. But there are other insurers that, that don't. Very, very few insurers have big allocations to stocks the way Berkshire does. Sure. But some do have very short-term uh, portfolios, yeah. What about deflation then? So I guess what are, is this like, is, is uh, I guess surviving in a deflationary environment, the exact opposite of everything that we just talked about? They reinvest a ton. Uh, that's, in. <laughs> that's the interesting thing. So um, it what causes deflation? <laughs> well, what causes inflation? No, uh, the, the simple way is what causes inflation is too few, uh, uh, too much money chasing too few goods, people would say. Although also assets um, could be the answer. But uh, deflation in general uh, would be the reverse of that. So you'd be having too many goods and, and not enough money. Um, but the real reason is that usually it has overcapacity. Okay. So, and that, that the thing with deflation that's a little more complicated and why people don't like deflation or worried about economists and stuff has to do with the things that come along with it. So, um, like take the COVID-19 thing and stuff in this area, right? So you were building a certain amount of hotels. You're building a certain amount of retail space, office space, things like that. If you're building at a rate expecting job growth of 5% a year for the next couple of years yeah. and it's flat, then you now have overcapacity. So why do you have deflation? Because you have to cut prices to fill up your capacity. The, the issue where it comes in as more of a problem usually, like the Great Depression or something, right, is because you the main reason is borrowed money. 
But if we put that aside for a second, it can't really happen with very quickly used up stuff. So you may see that there's a big change in like maybe people produce too many eggs because there was a run on eggs and now people are calm about it or whatever. Okay, that just works itself out. Egg prices collapse. It's not a big deal. But when you get it to things like um, real estate and stuff, it takes a very long time for those markets to clear and they, the things last for too long. And so that's usually where you have deflation. So we've had deflation in plenty of things from factory things to railroad things and stuff. And sometimes it's been very severe. And um, sometimes it, I mean, as an example of deflation in the late eighties, early nineties, there was actually deflation in the Dallas area. Um, there was not in people's wages and things, but certainly in real estate and for banks, there was deflation basically. And a lot of banks failed. Um, so it can happen in those places, but at the other time, it's hard to know because when I said inflation, I'm mostly referring to things that happened in the seventies, uh-huh. right? Or, you know, mid sixties to early eighties and in deflation, we're mostly talking about the thirties. The truth is that you had very sharp deflation in the very early 1920s. And then you had quite a lot of inflation during the 20s. And then you had deflation again in the Great Depression. So people forget the fact that there was this really severe deflation uh-huh. over like 18 months or whatever. And then they remember the one that like lasted a decade. And that's the same risk that we have now or whatever. Anytime we talk about like depressions, recessions, whatever, we basically, people are thinking of that one time that it mm-hmm. happened. There's actually been, you know, like for Buffett talked about this in the annual meeting. But the truth is that until... You know, if, if you take the entire history from like World War One, the founding of the country to World War One or something, there's basically no net inflation or deflation. Hmm. You know, in peacetime, you have uh, deflation and wartime, you have inflation. And that was basically the way that it worked throughout that whole period. And now we have a different set of things happening. So do you think there will be inflation going forward? I don't know the answer to that. Um, so I, I think I can say the same things that most people can say. There have been the seeds of things that can cause inflation, if not reversed, sown. But inflation is not caused by just increasing very basic money supply. Um, But that does create the possibilities for credit growth and stuff later on, which eventually, if it causes inflation in certain things, um, is possible. But the other thing that's tricky is that I said inflation... I define inflation the way most people do today, which is an increasing the average price of consumer goods. It is much more likely and more possible that you'll have inflating of certain asset prices and things immediately when you do the kinds of things that we're seeing now. Mm-hmm. And we've seen mild inflation in the uh, 21st century, but we have seen uh, severe inflation in certain assets at times. So asset bubbles, whatever you want to call them. So like housing bubbles or stock bubbles uh-huh. or whatever. So is that inflation? By the definition we use, it's not inflation. Um, but it seems to have a similar cause, right? So what does the listener do then? Is it like more of a be aware of it type of thing? <laughs> is it more of a you can't really control uh, it? So, or is it more of a, hey, look, look to implement companies that could benefit from it. I mean, what, you know, like why even, Oh, is it just like an awareness. Why worry about it and stuff? Uh, because your entire investment will be wiped out in real terms. If you, if you pick wrong. Okay. So uh, how do you then, how does the listener take that notion and implement it into their investing process? Sure. So like, let's take a company, IEH corporation, IEHC done very well and stuff. 
if there was very high inflation, I have no idea if they would produce any earnings, uh, any any own earnings, any free cash flow to you, because they have very high uh, inventory growth and stuff over time that that basically eats up all of their uh, returns anyway. So you can see that in them; they're not big free cash flow generators. So it's a good business for a while like that, but it can become a big problem. Uh-huh. Uh, we've talked about Tandy before or something. Even if they had success and growth, it could be a little rough for them in inflation, and you can see that just by looking at them. Whereas, um, so. If all of your investments were in things like that, that would be a bit of a risk. The thing is, you have to think in terms of, Buffett talked about like, would we write pandemic insurance? I mean, like after the pandemic. Maybe. So the time they write, yeah, they write yeah. pandemic insurance so after the pandemic. The, the time to think about is when no one is factoring that in. So I'll give you an example. You asked about Berkshire. Yeah. I honestly think that Berkshire's performance is in part, a meaningful part, uh, due to low inflation. And that if there happened to have been high inflation for the last 20 years, people would think Berkshire was doing amazingly well. So you're saying like their lack of performance to the S&P 500. Right, right. Or what a lot of people uh, talk about. I think some people think that Timberland has been a poor investment. Uh-huh. It won't be a very poor investment if inflation is high. Yeah. Um, stocks went up a lot, right? Mm-hmm. At the same, like, the, uh, you know, let's put it this way. The price of things like the S&P 500 and stuff were going, or their multiples, were increasing a lot faster than, like, prices in the real economy. Okay. If that happens, that's very bad for Timberland because people compare it as an investment versus um, stocks. And they say, look how well stocks did from 2010 to 2020. And look how little inflation there was. But if the reverse happens, like happened in the 70s, stocks go nowhere for, uh, you know, they're flat. And the purchasing power goes down a ton in that same 10 years. Then something like Timberland or something looks great. So I think it's important to look at have some things done badly for a while for real reasons. Mm -hmm. Or have they done badly for reasons that have to do with inflation? And I think using the Berkshire example... Would railroads, utilities, and insurers do as well or better versus other kinds of stocks if there was a lot of inflation? Yeah, I think they would have done relatively better. And so sometimes people are like, well, I'm not going to buy utilities. But if there's a lot of inflation, you regulate utilities. If there's a lot of inflation, you might want to buy regulated utilities. You might want to buy Timberland. You might want to buy all sorts of other things like that. Mm-hmm. And so should it be part of your portfolio? Maybe. I think you should be aware that of what components make up the return sure right and so a manufacturer or retailer inflation has um it doesn't really add to your return as far as i can tell looking at things historically i don't believe that ihc for instance that stock would necessarily have better returns in inflation timberland would so you're kind of when if you prefer that kind of stock Uh to something like timberland what you're saying is i'm betting on inflation staying the way it is you're you're not thinking it through like mm-hmm. one way or the other, but you're just thinking. Well, if you're taking the last 15 years of anything, you're just saying, okay, I'm expecting more of the same. Mm-hmm. And the important thing to keep in mind is that the big turns in these things tend to happen off of levels that are very low, so that no one thinks that things will get higher. Like we just talked about the 70s or whatever. That follows 30 years after when municipal bonds were yielding like one percent right after World War II, and everyone was convinced that they would stay there. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, and then 30 years later, everyone was convinced that inflation would just keep getting higher and higher. You can read things in like the 80s and everyone is convinced that it's just we're going to be right back to what was happening uh, then when actually they're in like a 30 year declining uh, inflation rate or something. But they are they're still thinking of that. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's important to keep in mind that just because inflation is incredibly low now or something isn't really that helpful in knowing what it'll be in the next 10 or 20 years. So it's like pricing it. I wouldn't say you should buy things that are 
um, going to benefit from inflation. Uh -huh. But I would say some things that might benefit from inflation might actually be particularly cheap now because they've had a poor 10 years or so. Sure, that yeah. tends to be how the momentum of these things work. Mm -hmm. So just to keep that in mind that, you know, certain things are pretty cheap right now and would not be thought of as such bad performers if it hadn't been that inflation was low and if it hadn't been that other kinds of stocks were doing particularly well, you know? Mm -hmm. I just wonder at some point, does it become like a analysis by paralysis type of situation where you're like trying to factor in all these things? Like, so you were talking about in the 70s, right. they felt like it was going to stick at, you know, 1% or whatever mm -hmm. you referenced before. And, you know, they were completely wrong. So it's like, are you looking for the extremes? Because I know, you know, for example, when we were talking about Frost in the past yeah. and when you made sort of this macro this investment more so off of a macro right. decision. Yeah. You were talking about how it was an extreme point. Yeah. And that's typically the time when you come in with, you know, maybe a little bit more of a top-down approach and then right. you know, go from the bottom up. But it was it was just an extreme point. So do you think with inflation, it really if you're gonna factor into your investment decision, it's really when you're at like an extreme point? Or because I mean you're not sitting here all day, you know, thinking about inflation, I'm sure. Right. Um I would avoid doing something that you could be ruined by high rates of inflation. Okay. Um, Which could lead to high quality companies as well. It could lead you to high quality companies. However, there are some financial companies which own very long-term fixed bonds and things. And so I would avoid them, to be honest. Not because I have any view one way or the other about uh, mm -hmm. interest rates or something, but I don't think I would want to own a company that is heavily invested in things that are... Um, paying them fixed rates of interest for 20 or 30 years or something. Um, I think, yeah, and in the Frost example, look, it went right back down to the, the rates went right back down so that the estimate that I had that, you know, rates of 2 to 4% in Fed funds or something in that range was more normal, well, they're back down to zero again. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it happened, the stock went up, and then people thought those rates were going to stick, and then they didn't. So it went back to this sort of thing. Now, there's a pandemic, but still, <laughs> I mean, that can happen. But uh, I, I think I think it's important to take into account the possibility that inflation could add to your returns or not. And there's a small number of companies in which inflation could, the, the ability to raise prices and things along with inflation is very helpful. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's two companies that are equally positioned, except one of them has to keep reinvesting in the business and the other one doesn't. I would much prefer the one that doesn't. And so even though C's in many ways, I think is lucky investment mm -hmm. because of how high inflation turned out to be, it still wouldn't be a poor investment without that. Um, so gen I would, you know, with few exceptions, stocks that do very well in inflation will do okay without inflation, as long as you don't pay an extra high price for it. And I would say for the most part now, there is not uh, a premium that you have to pay for inflation protection, basically. Well, that's my point, right? So if they could do well in an inflationary environment, maybe that's a good sign of a high quality company. You're looking at these candies, right? So they did well mm -hmm. in a very in an inflationary environment. And then to your point earlier of not paying up for it, I mean people like to say Buffett paid up, but he still paid like ten times earnings or something like that. Yeah. Like and, ten to fifteen and times for, earnings. I agree with you for capital light businesses. For businesses like Timberland and Cement and stuff, if we have no inflation, their returns won't be better than the market. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Cool. Well, I don't have we ever done a podcast on inflation like that before? Uh, we've talked a little bit about macro things like once or something. Yeah, cool. Well, that was uh, a lot of fun. I learned some new stuff throughout that podcast, and we hope everybody else did as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with Jeff and myself, 
Um, hit that subscribe button, thumb this video up. A rating review goes a very long way. We're super thankful for all the support that we've been receiving. Like I said, views are up, which is great. Makes both of us happy. <laughs> if you like the work we're doing, you want to support us, and you want to uh, use the same website that Jeff and I use every single day to pull financial reports and financial historical records, go to quickfs.net. And if you sign up for $35 a month and you tell them that you came from Focus Compounding, we will get a piece of that every single month. Helps bump up that reoccurring revenue. And we're super thankful for all the support. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with Jeff and myself, and we will see you in the next podcast.